<laughs> well, Merry Christmas, everybody. It's good to see all of you. I don't know what your Christmas traditions are, uh, but we've been slowly chipping away at our list of things you got to do to make Christmas Christmas, right? We made shortbread cookies. We dipped the pretzels in the white chocolate bark stuff and all that kind of stuff. What are some of your Christmas traditions that you just have to do to make Christmas Christmas? Shout them out. Cookies. Cookies. Just cookies. We'll just do cookies. It's a Wonderful Life. I'm sorry? Toys for Tots? Christmas caroling. Nice. What else? In the rain. Christmas cards. Anything else? Nothing. What? Christmas trees. Getting them up. Yeah. Awesome. Lights. Outdoor lights. Yeah. Go look for the lights. Awesome. (laughs) Matching pajamas. Yes. Buffalo plaid, all for everyone. That's awesome. Yeah, very, very cool. How Anybody uh, do the Hallmark Christmas movie thing like all, yeah, <laughs> this whole row over here. Yeah, yeah, you know, and, and Hallmark movies get kind of, uh, well, uh, they, yes, they get old, they get old. They're kind of, you know, people get all, all over them because they're kind of the same plot line. Right? It's like they just keep remaking the same story over and over and over again. I was watching online this week, and uh, Peter Schultz, who's a writer for SNL, he put this on Twitter. I thought this was really funny. He goes, as a relatively successful and busy man who lives in the city, my greatest fear is losing my girlfriend to a hometown hunk with a young son who teaches her the true meaning of Christmas. (laughs) I thought that was so funny. You know what? What's interesting about Christmas, it, I think, it, you know, you, so you have like the Hallmark Channel, right? And that's got like its own world, right? It's like feel-good endings, everything's happy, warm, warm feelings, everything's good. And then you flip to the news. I mean, and you couldn't imagine a greater contrast, could you, right, between Hallmark Christmas and like the real world week we're living in, Right? No greater possible contrast. And here's what's what's crazy to me. When we look at Christmas, in so often, you know, we think of it, we warm it up with all these feel-good stories, cliche happy endings, but the world is full of a lot of chaos and outrage and injustice and violence and struggle, isn't it? I mean, that's the real world. At the very same moment that those Hallmark movies are playing, right now there are 70.8 million refugees, asylum seekers, and forcibly displaced peoples in this world. Right now. Um, In France, this is what Christmas looks like in a refugee camp. In Uganda, this is what it looks like. In Rwanda, this is what it looks like. And those Hallmark movies that seem so, they're like fantasies now, a little bit. When you see this, you just realize there's such a disconnect between the Hallmark version of reality and the real world. Hallmark's kind of out of touch with reality, isn't it? I mean, and, and the reality is there's wars, there's oppression, there's genocide, there's corruption, and Christmas can feel so often like a departure from reality. 
Like we pause and just sort of stick our head in the ground and pretend like, I can't hear you. Everything's okay. No, it really is. But it's really not. Christmas has become so sanitized and mass marketed and kitschy and idealized and airbrushed, hasn't it? And that may be true of our westernized, commercialized Christian, uh, like sort of Christmassy thing that we do here in the West. But it's not true of the biblical story of Christmas. It's not true of what we read in the pages of the New Testament. Today we're going to dive into a series of events, real world, very raw events that took place in the days of Jesus' infancy. And I promise you there's nothing sanitized, nothing kitschy, nothing airbrushed about what we're about to look at. This world is rough, hostile, broken, and Jesus was born in the real world, not the hallmark world. Let me show you. And, and this is good news for us, because this is the world we live in, too. So let's, let me show you what I'm talking about. Matthew chapter 2. We're working our way through Matthew chapter 1 and 2. As we work around the Advent wreath, we're, we're turning today to love, and we're turning to the second part of Matthew chapter 2. This is page 808 in your pew Bible, if you want to grab it and join us uh, there. Just a reminder of where we're at. Mary and Joseph have been in Bethlehem. They've been there for several months. Uh, The Magi have come from foreign lands. They came uh, to find the newborn king. They went to Jerusalem first because that's the city where the king would be, you would think. Uh, He finds Herod, the, the Magi's rather, they find Herod, and Herod tells them, that the newborn king, according to the teachers and, uh, of the law and the chief priests, that the, that the newborn baby king was prophesied to be born in Bethlehem. And so he sends them on their way with the words, once you go and find him, come back and tell me, because then I, will, I want to come worship him as well. But it's a ruse. Herod is a notoriously ruthless king, hell-bent on eliminating any rival to his throne. He had killed many of his family members. This is not out of character with him. Um, And so he sends them on their way. The Magi are warned in a dream after finding Jesus not to return to Herod, but to go home by a different route. So they do this. And our story picks up here. And I want to just, we're going to work through three buckets this morning. We're going to look at the flight, the evil, and the return. Okay? The flight, the evil, and the return. First, the flight. Look at verses 13 to 15 with me. Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. So the they is the wise men, of course, the magi. When they've left, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. So immediately Joseph gets this word in his angelic dream and off he goes uh, to Egypt almost immediately, right? In the middle of the night, they don't have much time. Bethlehem is five and a half miles from Jerusalem. So if Herod is on his way, it's just a matter of uh, just a few minutes. They've got to get a head start. So in the middle of the night, this is urgency. Joseph's obedient. They get up and they go. Now you say, why Egypt? Why of all places do they go to Egypt? 
Well, it's the nearest border where they can get away from the jurisdiction of Herod. That's first. Uh, But secondly, in uh, northern Egypt, there was a significant number of expatriate Jewish people who had settled there, especially in the city of Alexandria. So it's likely that maybe Joseph had a relative or somebody he knew that lived down there, so he doesn't have to start from scratch, but he heads out on his own uh, for northern Egypt. And, um, and so we have here, this is shocking, but the very first thing that happens to Jesus is he's a refugee. He's a refugee. This is how it began for him. Displaced, hunted down, forcibly uh, sent on his way, on the run, a refugee, an asylum seeker. And this young, poor family begins life with their newborn child on the run. And we know they're poor because when they dedicate Jesus in the temple, in Luke's account, They sacrifice two doves or two pigeons, which is the lowest socioeconomic level of sacrifice you can possibly do. They're basically on food stamps. So they don't have any money for this journey to Bethlehem in the first place. And secondly, now they don't have any money for this journey to Egypt. This is wrecking them. So you say, well, how did they make it all the way there? How did they live for those months? Well, they probably sold or bartered away the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That's probably how they funded this whole thing. So God provided through the Magi for the things that they would need on their trip, even before it was, the plan was concocted by Herod. Isn't that amazing? Now, we're not told how long they stayed in Egypt, but it probably was at least a few months at a minimum. And it's only after Herod's death that they will return to the land of Israel. But Matthew sees something. This is very pragmatic here, isn't it? Joseph going down there and all this kind of thing. But Matthew sees something deeper going on. He sees in all of this the fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures. In Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, what he quotes from here, God says, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, what's interesting, if you go back, and we won't do this right now, but if you go back to that passage, son in Hosea 11 is clearly a reference to the people of Israel, and out of Egypt is clearly a reference to the Exodus. So we're talking about going all the way back with Moses and the people of Israel being called out of Egypt through the Red Sea into the wilderness on their way to the Promised Land. Out of Egypt, I've called my firstborn son Israel. So you have this very clear reference of the people of God. Now Matthew is going to apply this text, which is about a group of people, now to the actual son of God, Jesus. And you say, what's going on there? Well, he sees a parallel. He sees a parallel between what God has done in the past and he is now doing again. He did with a group of people. Now he's doing with an individual with his Son, In the same way that God called Israel, his son, out of Egypt to bring them into a land of promise and into an age of fulfillment, now God is again calling his son out of Egypt into a, a, a land of promise and into an age of fulfillment. These are parallel. And scholars will actually point out, if you read the commentaries and such, that there are parallels between Moses' infancy stories, who is the leader of the Exodus, and Jesus' infancy stories. 
And so what you have, they're both born to deliver their people. They're both hunted down in their infancy by rulers who felt threatened by them. They were both miraculously delivered, and they both went on to redeem and liberate their people. Isn't that interesting? And so what Matthew is trying to say in all of this is that Jesus is the new redeemer for a new exodus. Jesus is the new redeemer for a new exodus. Moses delivered from the bondage of slavery. Jesus will deliver from the bondage of sin. Moses stood eye to eye with Pharaoh and stared him down. Jesus will will look eye to eye at Satan and stare him down. Moses walked through the waters to safety, and Jesus will walk through death to resurrection. And Matthew wants us to see here that this is a new redeemer who has come for a brand new exodus that needs to take place. And so Jesus here is identifying with Israel. He's literally walking where Israel walked, going down into Egypt and coming back out again in order that not only will he identify with the story of Israel, but that he might be the true and greater redeemer of the exodus the people really need. And this is this, do you see what God's doing? I mean, in all of this, this is evil that's happening in both cases, and yet God is working his good redemption plan through it all. It is glorious and masterful what God is doing as he orchestrates and overrules all of time and history. But this is also very relatable to us, to where we live. Because Jesus knows what it is to be displaced. There's your takeaway. Jesus knows what it is to be displaced. That's a very human experience, isn't it? Have you ever lost something important to you? A house? Have you lost your home? A job? Have you ever had to be uprooted against your will? Wandering, starting over, picking up the pieces of your life. Do you know what that feels like? Don't you see, Jesus knows what that's like. He's not born on easy street with a silver spoon in his mouth and a trust fund to catch him when he falls. No, he's a refugee, a forcibly displaced child, a minority in a non-native speaking environment, estranged from his homeland with limited structural supports, There's nothing sanitized or airbrushed about this. Do you see that? He gets it. Secondly, let's look at the evil here. I hesitated to use that word. That's a really strong word. But I can't, there's no other word for this. What happens next? Look at verses 16 to 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then it was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So Herod, this notoriously brutal king who had already killed his wife and at least one of his kids, maybe two of them, um, 
killed his father-in-law. This guy's a mess. He's just paranoid. He orders an infanticide in the small town of Bethlehem and the surrounding areas. All the males, two years and younger. He gets this time frame from the Magi, but he probably enlarges it just to be safe. Now, Bethlehem supported a population of maybe 1,000 people. And so imagine losing our entire nursery worth of boys in two years and under. That's what happened. It's heart-wrenching. It's, it's brutal. Horror, genocide, infanticide, evil, devastating. And Matthew, again, sees parallels with the Old Testament. He says at Jeremiah 31, 15, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they're no more. Now, if you go back and look at that, and again, we won't do it now, but if you do, you will realize that that text is being written about what's called the exile. In 722 B.C., the Assyrian army came in and decimated the northern kingdom of Israel and hauled, not only killed a whole bunch of the fighting men uh, you know, of the generation, but also de- deported a whole bunch of the youth and took them with them. And so the imagery here is the nation in lament over the children that have been hauled off to foreign lands. And... It says Rachel's weeping. Well, Rachel is way back in the Old Testament. You have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob's wife, one of them, Rachel. And she's buried near Ramah. So it's all picturesque. It's like the mother of the nation is weeping for the children 722 B.C. All these years later. And Matthew sees this, this, like back then, there were a loss of a whole bunch of young people And a bunch of them were hauled off to foreign lands. And he's seeing parallels here. He's saying it's happening all over again. Some of these kids have been lost forever. And at least one little boy just got hauled off to Egypt. And Matthew sees in this moment, in the brutality of Herod, a kind of neo-exile. On a much smaller scale, but it's happening again. And so you see Jesus again is an exile, not just a refugee. He's an exile. He's not just, you know, going to a foreign land. He's running for his life. He's hunted and oppressed, and he's been driven from his homeland. He's in exile now. And it's one thing to be ripped away from your homeland. That's hard enough. But for a Jewish person who saw in the promised land the presence and power of God himself in Jerusalem, in the temple, in the land that belonged to the people of God, to be displaced from your land is not just to be displaced from what's familiar. It's to lose contact with the presence and provision of God, you see. It's not just geographical removal. It's spiritual removal as well. What's interesting is that in the original context, though, of this quotation from Jeremiah, in the very next verse, listen to what it says. Stop crying. Wipe away your tears, for your children will return. So there's hope in the morning. 
And just as Jeremiah saw hope rising from this exilic devastation, Matthew sees hope rising out of this neo-exile as well. And he's saying Jesus is the new hope for a new exile. Jesus is the new hope for a new exile. When the exiles returned all those years later, they reestablished a people. They reaffirmed the covenant. They rebuilt the temple. They made safe the city. And they reclaimed some of their former glory. This was years ago. And in Jesus, as he comes back out of the land of Egypt, he will return to the land to do what? To reestablish the people of God. To inaugurate a brand new covenant in his blood. To, uh, dis- he said, he said, you destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And he's talking about his own body. So he will rebuild the temple. And he will make safe the city of God, the heavenly city of God, and he will bring glory for all the people. See, Jesus is walking the path again of the exile. And how did he do it? How did Jesus bring all this glory? By going into exile. And this is just a picture of what he's going to do in his whole ministry, don't you see? He goes down into Egypt, but he also goes out on the cross. He dies in outer darkness. He is outside the city, alienated from the presence of God in exile. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he was exiled, friends, that we might come home. This is his story. And friends, again, something we can relate to. Jesus knows what it's like to be oppressed. Jesus knows what it is to be oppressed. He was hated and hunted and persecuted and abandoned. He was struck down and crucified. Friends, Jesus has lived in the real world. The world we live in. Of broken hearts. Broken dreams. Broken homes. Broken lives. Broken bodies. The world of brutality and horror and pain. Jesus knows There's nothing sanitized or airbrushed about this. And then thirdly, now we have the return. The return. Verses 19 to 23, look at this. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus... This is Herod's son, one of his sons. Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod. He was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And when he went and lived, uh, and he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So Joseph again is directed in this angelic dream uh, way, uh, you know, to come back. Herod, we learn, is now dead, and he returns. Archelaus is one of the sons of Herod. Uh, Herod's uh, rule was divvied up amongst his sons, and Archelaus was, uh, was just like his dad. He was notorious, and he caused messes, and his reputation is already all over the city, and Joseph's asking around, and everyone's like, don't come back to Bethlehem. 
dude, go north. It's better in the north. If you're going to set up shop, go to the north. So he heads up to Galilee uh, where Antipas is uh, one, another one of the sons. But Antipas is ruler over Galilee. And he heads up north and settles in the city called Nazareth. And this is important because Jesus will be known as Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth. Why is this so important? Well, we know in all the prophecies that Messiah comes from Bethlehem. So if you were expecting something, you would see Jesus of Bethlehem, the city of David, the great king. That's not where he's from. So Jesus, this, this is going to become a barrier for Jesus. Uh, people aren't going to know what to do with someone from Nazareth, right? And so Matthew's getting ahead of that. He's trying to help us understand. He's born in Bethlehem. Of Judea, but he's raised in Nazareth of Galilee. That's his story. And so we have Jesus the Nazarene here. Jesus the Nazarene. Matthew tells us this is in keeping with the prophetic writings, but we have a problem here. Okay, if you fell asleep, this is the time to wake up. Okay? We have a problem here because guess what? This, uh, notice something's different here. All the other quotations have quotation marks around them, right? Do you see any quotation marks in your text? No. You know why? There's no quotation. There's no quotation in the Old Testament that says, he shall be called a Nazarene. It's nowhere. In fact, the word Nazarene doesn't even show up in the Old Testament, nor does the name of the city Nazareth. So what is he talking about? What is he talking about? So the scholars are like, what is going on? I don't understand. If he's saying it's fulfilling the prophet, prophetic expectation, how do you say that when there's nothing that says this? Okay, this is a problem, right? Can we agree this is a problem? Yeah, okay. You're waking up. I can see. All right. So there's three theories of what's going on, okay? The first one is that, um, that maybe Matthew's doing a little word play here because there's a word in Hebrew called netzer. Netzer means branch. Like uh, it says in Isaiah 11, a shoot will come up from the stem of Jesse. A branch from the roots will bear fruit. And so that word is branch in Hebrew is netzer. And so it's sort of like Nazarene, sort of. And so they're like, maybe he's doing a wordplay thing. The problem is we're going from Hebrew to Greek, and it's really not even that clear. So nice try. Secondly, second option is... Uh, and, Seriously, I just threw that out really quickly. There's like 17 books that argue that, okay? But it's nonsense. Just throw it out. It's nonsense. Secondly, um, it could be a reference to people who are like, well, it's kind of, Nazarene is kind of like Nazarite. And there's a Nazarite vow, which is that something people would take when they want to dedicate themselves to the Lord. And they wore weird clothes and they ate weird food and they didn't cut their hair and all this kind of stuff. Well, maybe it's a reference to he's kind of like a Nazarite. He's dedicated to the Lord. The problem is Jesus never took, as far as we know, a Nazarite vow. John the Baptist maybe did, you know, with his long hair, eating locusts, living in the desert, all that. Maybe he did. But Jesus never did, as far as we can tell. So there's no buildup in the text to point in that direction. So throw that out, too. Okay? Now, this one's harder, but here's, this is, there's, it's more than me that just thinks this. Here's my theory. Matthew's not stupid. Okay? Can we give him that? He's brilliant. He's writing this whole thing. He's brilliant. 
He knows you're going to go to the Old Testament and try to look this up. And you're going to come up short. What if he did that on purpose? What if he meant for you to go back and realize there's no text? And then you go, what is he doing here? Maybe he wants to send you on this wild goose chase. Okay? Because here's, here's what we learn. In the first century, to be from Nazareth is not a compliment. Nazareth is like, so, so to call someone a Nazarene is like throwing shade. It's like insulting or dissing or dismissing someone, ridiculing them. Nazareth is backwoods, unsophisticated. This is like calling someone a redneck or a hillbilly or something like that. They're just a Nazarene, okay? And furthermore, it was home to the garrison of the Roman, uh, the Roman garrison for the north. And so there were all these Romans there, and all the citizens of the town sort of served the garrison, and so they were viewed as sellouts to Rome and the oppression and the man and all of that, right? So they didn't like them. So to be from Nazareth, to be called a Nazarene, is to be despised, ridiculed, dismissed, rejected, poked fun at. That's... That's how this works. We see this, by the way, in John chapter uh, 1, verse 46, when uh, Philip goes to Nathanael and says, Come, we think we found the Messiah. It's Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathanael says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like, you're kidding me. Nothing good comes out of that town. Every time it's used, look it up. Every time it's used in the New Testament, when it's more than just Jesus' reference point to where he's lived, but when it's on the lips of anyone else, it is not a compliment. Never. In uh, P- uh, Peter, in Matthew 26, when Jesus is on trial and Peter's denying Jesus, one of the statements the servant girl says, weren't you with Jesus the Nazarene? And he says, I don't even know that guy. Like, do not associate me with that Nazareth crazy guy, Right? In Matthew 21, the triumphal entry, Jesus is coming in. They're like, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna to the son of David. And the crowd says, who is this guy? It's Jesus of Nazareth. You see this? It's a diss. And it's, I think what's going on is Matthew is referring to the prophetic expectation that Messiah would be despised and rejected and hated. And he'll be called a Nazarene. Dismissed. Psalm 22, verse 6. Messiah will be reproached by men, despised by the people. Isaiah 55, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And so Matthew is saying, I think, that the Old Testament prophetic anticipation was that Jesus would be dismissed out of hand ridiculed, despised, made fun of. He's just a Nazarene. This isn't really about where he lives as as it is about how he's treated. This is your king, Jesus of Nazareth. Let me read you the full context of that last quote I said in Isaiah 53. This is verses 2 to 5. For he grew up before him like a young plant, 
And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. See, Jesus, friends, Jesus is a new king for a new kingdom. He's a new king for a new kingdom. Listen, Jesus is not tall, dark, and handsome. He does not look like a Disney prince, right? He doesn't have wealth or power or might or grandeur. He is lowly. He is meek. He is gentle. He is humble. He comes on a donkey. But this is a new kind of kingdom, not like the empires of old. This is a kingdom where the king lays down his life for his people to win their hearts in allegiance and to change the world. This is a kingdom of mercy and grace and forgiveness. This is a kingdom for anyone, anywhere. At any time, this despised king will welcome the despised of this planet to himself. Judeans, yes, but also Galileans, Jerusalemites, and Nazarenes. Jews and Gentiles, Samaritans, Syrians, Roman oppressors, Nicodemus, social elite, and the thief on the cross, both get to come into the kingdom of Jesus. This despised king will welcome the despised of this earth. He will open wide his arms, and the kingdom of God can be even ours. For those who are left behind, despised and rejected and thrown out. That's why Matthew 5, Jesus opens his Sermon on the Mount with the blesseds, right? And he says toward the end of them, Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in the kingdom of the heavens. And friends, Jesus knows what it's like to be despised. He knows what it's like to be despised. He knows what it's like to be unwanted. To be ridiculed and profiled and dismissed and slandered and hated and browbeaten and brutalized and abused. And some of you know exactly how that feels. And don't you see, Jesus knows and Jesus cares. He's not a trust fund kid 
with no scars to show. He has faced the underbelly of evil. All of it. Friends, God did not keep Jesus safely insulated from all the pain and agony of this sin-cursed world. He threw him in the fire. He threw him in where it was hottest. One of the things that used to bother me about this text is that Jesus was rescued and all these other babies weren't. But do you realize God was not keeping his baby safe permanently. He had to get him away so he could come back and die an even more gruesome death. That he would face an even more hostile power. That he would stare hell in the face. It's the only reason. God was just keeping him for later so that he would die for the sins of the world. He would pay hell for us. It's the only way he protected him. And Jesus courageously walked into that cross and he let hell hit him squarely between the eyes and swallow him alive. And he did that for you and me. And having paid the penalty of our sin, he rose on the third day with triumph and glory and power as the victorious conqueror of sin, death, and Satan. Friends, there's nothing sanitized or airbrushed or kitschy or idealized or tidied up about this Jesus. Christmas, listen, Christmas is about a God who climbs into the darkest, most agonizing brutalities of this sin-cursed, Satan-dominated, death-oppressed reality. And he takes it all into himself, and he bears the hellishness of it. He experiences the agony of the cross and bursts forth with resurrection power, indestructible, indomitable, victorious life. And then he says to you, Trust me. I've got you. I have done everything to make you right with God. I have come to be where you are. And if you will come with me, I will take you where I was in glory. That's what Christmas is about. This isn't Hallmark. This is Jesus. This is glory. Come, follow me. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that our Jesus is not a myth. He is not a cleaned up, sanitized, isolated, distant, disconnected Savior. He gets it. He has walked through the valley of the shadow of death. He has faced oppression, infanticide, brutality, forcible displacement. 
he has experienced the ugliest stuff of this world for us. For us. To redeem, to rescue, to lead the triumphal exodus out of bondage, to bring the people back from exile, and to usher in a kingdom like no other. A kingdom of peace, of glory, of righteousness, of humility and love. That you would deliver Jesus in love, to deliver him over in love, that he might deliver us in love. This is amazing. And so we thank you today that Christmas is so real. It's right where we are. We thank you that Jesus has come all the way down to raise us all the way up. We thank you. We give you glory. We thank you for Christmas. For it's in Jesus' name we pray.